He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through himself to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. And I have the pleasure of welcoming our own, very own Matt Crummy to the stand. Let's give him a little, little welcome. I kind of like that you said to the stand, like I'm testifying in a court case. It's actually a good word for today, testify. All right, uh, so my name is Matt. I go to church here. My wife was singing just a minute ago. Um, I might just open us in prayer real quick and then I'll jump in. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are good and kind. Thank you just that you are present. Holy Spirit, I pray just that you would work in our lives, that you would use this time. And God, we pray just that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so you may not realize this, but I'm also, also introducing a series today. So this series is about God. It's a good start, right? How does he interact with us? How is he working through our lives? What's the story he's writing that we're a part of? It's also a series about people, normal people, abnormal people. Some are obscure and some aren't so much. And during a time of transition at the Gateway Church, we feel it's important to be reminded that God loves us, that he's with us, that he invites us into a new way to be human, a Jesus way to be human. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. We remember that a lot at Christmas, but that doesn't change. Whether things are easy or hard or weird or awesome, he is with us. He is writing a better story. The culture we find ourselves in can tempt us to drift into self-centeredness, isolation, division, defensiveness, consumption, workaholism, hoarding, the list goes on. But we want generosity, we want interdependence, we want communion, we want openness, we want rest, we want love. The bad things that happen in our lives are just that, they're bad things. They don't define us, they aren't our identity. We don't fight fire with fire, or as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, do not, we do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. These things need not have power over us. Wherever we find brokenness in our lives, we find good things that are being used in the wrong way, or at the wrong time, or at the wrong place, and so on. We find, as St. Augustine put it, disordered loves. So if we don't actively fill our minds and hearts and lives with good things, our imaginations will be filled with people like 
Me, marketing directors. That's what I do as a job. I'm a marketing director. And the way marketing works is that people like me work to draw the attention of a particular group of people who are important to their business. We draw their attention to move them along a journey toward a purchase or some sort of action. And this could mean donating money or signing up to volunteer or buying something. There's many ways to go about this, but the basic structure is to highlight a customer's problem and then present your product as the solution. This is typically done through something called advertising. So are you feeling lonely today? Look at all these happy, attractive people laughing and drinking. I should go pick up a 12-pack of White Claw. Broke because you spent all of your money on White Claw? The, Sa the Chase Sapphire Preferred Card allows you to earn triple points on online grocery purchases. So you can maintain your lifestyle and get access to tools that help you keep track of your finances. You get the idea. So Jesus is inviting us to a new way of seeing and doing, resting and gathering. We aren't called to do this alone. We're invited to join with the company of the saints in pursuing God and serving humanity. Hebrews 12 says, therefore, since we, have, we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We'll come back to this in a bit, but where we fix our eyes is both, both metaphorically and literally quite important. It's the subject of this sermon, you could say. But by way of introduction to the series, the invitation we see in Hebrews is to keep our eyes on Jesus. The writer of Hebrews highlights two important things about Jesus here. He's the pioneer and he's the perfecter. He's both the creator of reality and the telos. In the NIV, the word pioneer is translated author. The word in Greek basically means leader. He is the first cause and our authority, authority. It's not an accident that the word author and authority are related words. But he's also the perfecter. Given the analogy of running a race in Hebrews 12, the wordplay here is something like he's the alpha and the omega. Jesus is the beginner and the completer or the finisher. The word perfecter in the Greek is, is teleiotes, which shouldn't awaken only an image of the end of something, but rather it's fulfillment. Think of a bit like farming. You prepare the soil. You plant, you water, you wait, you pray, and eventually you harvest. You take a bite of that Grimes sweet corn, and it is, as the French say, magnifique. <laughs> it's perfection. In some ways, the harvest is the end of something, but it's more like walking a trail in Colorado that leads to a beautiful mountain lake. Your arrival doesn't signal sadness, but awe and thanksgiving. You are experiencing fullness. Jesus is both the author of truth and its fulfillment. This means we can let down our shoulders a little bit, something I should probably do here, and relax. 
If you're a good runner, you know that's essential actually to good running. God's got this. So the series is entitled Living Letters, which is a riff off of 2 Corinthians 3. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are Christ's letter, delivered by us, not written with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence we have through Christ before God. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Paul here seems to be saying that if anyone needs proof of the legitimacy of his ministry, they should look no further than the very lives of the Corinthians. Paul is saying he doesn't need a cover letter or a resume here. He invites the Corinthians to examine their lives to see how the Spirit of God is extending his authorship and fulfillment through their very community. This series, we will explore how Christ is writing to the world through our lives and hearts, often without our noticing. There are many ways that God reveals himself, but one way is through us, here and now, today. So we'll do this by looking at stories of faith that unfold in lives of ordinary individuals. We wanna see how God's faithfulness transcends circumstances and how he continually writes a tale of grace and goodness. We want to take notice of God's activity and of our expectations. And with that, we begin our story of stories with my main point today, which is imagine what's possible with God. Dorothy Day was born in Brooklyn, New York on November 8, 1897. At six years old, her family moved to Oakland, California when her father took a job as a sports writer. In 1906, a large earthquake hit San Francisco and her father lost her job at the newspaper plant after it was destroyed. Even at a young age, this event awakened young Dorothy to the desperation of others and foreshadowed what was to come in her life. After this, the family moved to Chicago. She wasn't from a very religious family, but an Episcopal rector near their home convinced her mom to sign Dorothy up for choir. For the first time, Dorothy started regularly attending church Later in, the, in life, Dorothy reflected on this time and reflected on specifically how she would write letters to her BFF. <laughs> and she described herself as filled with pomp, vanity, and piety. So you could say that Dorothy might have been a little bit insufferable uh, is the word that, that comes to mind. She was later confirmed and baptized, but her most significant spiritual awakening would still be years in the making. She became a voracious reader and writer and eventually enrolled at the University of Illinois after winning a writing scholarship at age 16. During college, she started her career as a journalist and began noticing a shocking disparity between the lives of the rich and the poor. 
She also joined the Socialist Party. Remember that this is during World War I, and she was poor herself. She later wrote about this time in her autobiography, The Long Loneliness. There was a great question in my mind. Why was so much done in remedying social evils instead of avoiding them in the first place? There were day nurseries for children, for instance, but why didn't fathers get enough money to take care of their families so that mothers would not have to go to work? There were hospitals to take care of sick and infirm, and of course doctors were doing what they could to prevent sickness, but what of the occupational diseases and the diseases which came from not enough food for the mom or children? What of the disabled workers who received no compensation but only charity for the remainder of their lives? Disabled men without arms and legs, blind men, consumptive men, exhausted men, with all the manhood drained from them by industrialism, farmers gaunt and, and harried with debt, mothers weighed down with children at their skirts, in their arms, in their wombs, children ailing and rickety. All this long procession of desperate people called to me, where were the saints? Where were the saints to change the social order? Not just to minister to the slaves, but to do away with slavery. I read in the New Testament, this is still her, I read in the New Testament, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but to the forward, which just means harsh. And on the other hand, there was this call to action, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, but I could not be meek at the thought of injustice. I wanted a Lord who would scourge the money changers out of the temple, and I wanted to help all those who raise their hand against oppression. For me, Christ no longer walked the streets of this world. He was 2,000 years dead, and new prophets had risen up in his place. I was in love now with the masses. I do not remember that I was articulate or reasoned about this love, but it warmed and filled my heart. The poor and oppressed were going to rise up, they were collectively the new Messiah, and they would release the captives. Honestly, I kind of think her reaction makes sense, given what was going on. But both the way she imagined God and how she pictured the solutions were only half-truths. And this is the kind of thing we're studying today. Early on in Dorothy's activism, her imagination was narrowly focused on the pain she saw around her and the anger she felt within. She had yet to discover the moral foundations and the source of strength for giants who'd come later like Martin Luther King Jr. Dorothy's response was appropriate given what she saw, still it wasn't a complete picture of reality. And despite her relative immaturity, we should not be quick to dismiss her work she was working to give a voice to the oppressed. She was an instrument of God's common grace. And yet she felt more haunted by God than comforted. She could do a lot independently, but she needed to imagine what would be possible with God. So this morning, we're considering actually something kind of difficult. We're considering how the images in our minds 
are shaped by how we receive reality and what we give our attention to. They are informed, they meaning our imaginations, are informed by our social location, our families of origin, and much more. To say that another way, we're going to take a moment to step back and consider what is influencing our thinking as a church and how that affects our desires to follow Jesus individually and together. As Karen Swallow Pryor puts it in her new book on the topic, while the objective world in all its entirety exists all around us, our imagination draws only from what we can perceive. And we primarily perceive what we attend to. This means our imaginations can only draw on the things that we've come into contact with in some way. And they tend to drift toward what we give our minds to dwell on. In both our knowledge and our ability to focus, we're limited. On top of all that, spoken or unspoken language is what humans use to process that reality. And so, if I tell you to imagine an iPad falling to the ground, I'm not gonna actually drop this because I need it, and breaking, an image likely pops into your mind because you know what an iPad is. But if back in the 90s, someone had told me to imagine an iPad falling on the ground, I probably would have imagined like the cushions you're sitting on here or like a feminine care product falling off the shelf at Walgreens. The word iPad would have been unhelpful for me because I had no frame of reference. I hadn't perceived an iPad before, so I couldn't imagine it without a description. And even with the things we think we know, we're limited. You know, that thing when you drive by a place you've been by like a hundred times and then you notice something you've never noticed before? Despite the fact that it's always been there, you just didn't notice it. Well, that's because you can never absorb all knowledge about a thing or a place or a person. And honestly, that's a great relief. Like, we're off the hook and the secret's out, you don't know everything. So our ability to imagine is a gift from God. It's an important part of what makes us human and like God. Again, Karen Swallow Pryor puts it this way, the ability of the human mind to imagine, to make images that have meaning, reflects the marvelous fact that we are made in the image of God. We are the product of his imagination in a very literal and as well as metaphorical sense. The ability to imagine is a reminder of one of those, uh, I'm sorry, the ability to imagine is a reminder of the one in whose image we are made. One of the greatest philosophers on the imagination, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, characterizes the imaginative act as a repetition in the finite mind, that's our brains, of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. Indeed, even the incarnation, um, even the incarnation, even the incarnation, I'm missing a word there, um, God in the, in the image of human flesh is a work of God's imagination, for Christ is the image of the invisible God. Okay, that was a lot, right? I, get, I know that I'm aiming up here right now. 
and, and I'm dialing back, actually, how, like the depth that we can explore. There's a lot here. So let's look at something maybe you might be a little bit more familiar with, which is Colossians 1. We just read this. Colossians 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you in his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith that you are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Jesus is an image. He is the image of the invisible God. God is spirit, and Jesus is that God in the flesh, with real skin and bones and eyes and blood. The very incarnation of God is a work of God's imagination, in action. All things have been created by him, through him, and for him. Remarkably, you and me, we are also made in the image of this God. Genesis 1:27 says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female. So we aren't gods but we are God-like in the sense that we are created to create and to nurture. The bad news is that since the beginning of humanity, we have twisted this good ability toward independence from God or as a way to dominate other people. In short, we forget we are created beings. We begin to think of ourselves as independent agents floating about the world trying to create ex nihilo which is to say from nothing. We begin to worship the created things instead of the creator. Frankly, I think this can be a fine line to walk. It's, I think it's good to immerse ourselves in beauty. It can help us connect with God and become healthier, happier people. But we don't worship these things as an end in themselves. Our greatest strengths and the world's greatest pleasures can become our most significant areas of distraction or temptation. So this probably isn't news to you, but it is some, and it isn't something to be afraid of, but it foreshadows why Jesus took on flesh and took on the costs of our disordered loves. One word the Bible uses to describe this is sin. I mentioned St. Augustine earlier. Here's how he put it. 
Living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. To see things as they are, you could say. To love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is to be lo- or what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. So just totally clear as mud, right? The idea is we want to get our loves in the right order. Sin flows from our disordered loves. Despite being intimately acquainted with your mistakes and fears, Jesus presses into these areas of our lives. Linnea touched on this before, where we fall short and brings mercy and forgiveness. He invites us to a different and better way, a way he authors and fulfills. The way, as it was called in the early church. We are invited to discipleship with Jesus. So we all have baggage to bring, or that we bring along on this pilgrimage, but this is where our imagination begins to get very important. How do we develop a Jesus-shaped imagination? That's kind of hard to say. I have two areas I encourage you to attend to in this season at the Gateway Church. How we imagine God and how we envision both our present and future. So first up, how we imagine God. We need to attend to our view of God. This is a lifelong journey of learning. This was Dorothy Day's challenge too. How she imagined God was incomplete. She saw him as distant, uninvolved, aloof, deaf to the cries of people experiencing poverty. He was, as she put it, 2,000 years dead. New prophets had risen up in his place. Still only 18 years old, Dorothy took a job at a socialist newspaper in New York, covering various labor movement stories. She was immersed in a world of communists, free thinkers, and anarchists. She was in the streets as history was being made. While covering a story, she was imprisoned and went on hunger strike with her fellow prisoners. While in jail, she briefly dipped her toes back into the scriptures, but then upon a release, she plunged even deeper into a season of spiritual running. She later described herself at this time as dissolute, wasted, full of sensation and sensuality. She had relationships with several men, and after becoming pregnant, she had an abortion, and when she feared, when she feared that her boyfriend would leave her otherwise. But as in many stories like this, he deserted her anyway. She traveled back to Europe, to Chicago, to New Orleans, and eventually back to California briefly. She settled down at a beach home in Staten Island and found more time to write and reflect. She entered into a common law marriage with a man named Forrester Battingham, which I might add is an excellent name for a cat, if anyone needs a cat name. Um, He was a biologist whose political views Dorothy shared. Like her, he decried injustice and suffering, and at this time, life seemed perfect. Beauty surrounded her, she had time to write and think, 
She had friends. She later wrote of this time, it was a peace, curiously enough, divided against itself. I was happy, but my very happiness made me know that there was a greater happiness to be obtained from life than I had ever known, than any I had ever known. I began to think, to weigh things, and it was at this time that I began to consciously, or became consciously to pray more. To the grief of her husband, her heart began to soften toward God, and she began to incorporate various Catholic religious practices into her life. When they had a daughter, she privately struggled with whether to baptize the child and whether she should join the church. Eventually, she decided to join the Catholic Church. Her husband, who was both an atheist and an anarchist, left Dorothy and their daughter. So that's the end of the story, right? We can all go home, that's real encouraging. A single mom abandoned by her husband with their young child, and by all accounts, it would have been understandable if Dorothy had given up hope. But what if that isn't it? What if Dorothy Day had imagined what was possible with God? Colossians 1, 21 through 23 says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, as expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and you are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So apart from God, our minds are alienated and hostile to the way of Jesus. Our imaginations feed on things that aren't true or good or beautiful. But in Christ, we are made whole again. Our minds are renewed. In Christ, we are set free. And out of this freedom, we can nurture our thinking with care to ensure it remains grounded and steadfast in Christ. Do you ever set aside time to offer care to your mind, whether that's through reading the scriptures or prayer, meditation, a walk, a run, sitting with someone you admire, listening to an entire album, top to bottom, whatever it is, that's the good stuff, right? Are you cultivating the soil your imagination grows in? Could we think about it a little bit more like tending a garden and a little less like a constant war zone or a messy drawer you're ignoring in your bedroom. Imagine what's possible with God. I'm not sure that I can overstate how important your view of God is. It's a tough thing to stay on top of. I mean, we're talking about God here. The Jewish people talk about this concept as the ineffable meaning something too great or extreme to be expressed or described in words. This is why the Jewish people wouldn't utter the name of God, which is the word the Gentiles would later write as Jehovah. The rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote about this. He said, to become aware of the ineffable is to part company with words. The essence, the tangent to the curve of human experience lies beyond the limits of language. The world of things we perceive is but a veil, 
Its flutter is music, its ornament, science, and what, conceals, what it conceals is inscrutable. Its silence remains unbroken. No word can carry it away. Sometimes we wish we could cry and tell, uh, sometimes we wish the world would cry and tell us about that which made it pregnant with fear-filling grandeur. Sometimes we wish our own heart would speak of that which made it heavy with wonder. God is kind of hard to describe. He's hard to imagine. It's probably why in the book of Revelation, John, in his vision, he keeps describing things as like this and like that. He knew his readers just had no frame of reference to envision what he was witnessing. But God is both more loving and more set apart than we can fathom. When we consider him impersonal, Jesus reveals himself as honest and kind to the woman at the well. When we imagine him as an insignificant rabbi at the end of, a, of an obscure sect of first century Jews, we recall that God spoke the universe into existence. God is both dynamic and steadfast. He is personal and yet untouchable, all-powerful and yet a gentle servant. He is self-sufficient and yet he shares himself with us all. How do you imagine a God like this? What is he like? Again, we remember Colossians 1. It says he's the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This is one of the most significant gifts of the incarnation. God became flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth only 2,000 years ago here in this world. That's a story. He came to give his life as a ransom for the debt we had racked up. He came to rescue Dorothy Days and Matt Crummies and the poor and the marginalized. He came to offer life to anyone who would follow him. Jesus was crucified. He rose again three days later and reigns today with God the Father, where he waits to return and make all things right. He is utterly and completely good. There is no shadow in him at all, no diabolical planning, just justice and joy and contentment and beauty, genuine community and selfless love. I encourage you to actively attend to how you imagine God. You can ask yourself questions like, is God afraid? No, he isn't. Is he impatient? No, he isn't. Is he deceitful? No, he isn't. Is he abusive? No, he's not. Is he merciful? Yes. Does he desire good for my life and for this church? Yes, he does. For Des Moines, yes. I think it's one of the healthiest things you can do for yourself and for those around you is to tend to the garden of your mind. Lastly, we must attend to how we envision the present and the future. We should feed things that are good, true, and beautiful to our imaginations to fertilize our attitudes and our actions. We want the mind of Christ in our day-to-day. -day. We want to provide fertile soil 
for the dreams God will place in our hearts and minds, in our community, in other churches, and so on. We want to bring an expectation that God is on the move. So what is the story God is writing in your life? Or how about the Gateway Church? In Genesis 22, we see how God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac at a burnt, as a burnt offering, which is a story I still can't wrap my mind around. As Abraham and Isaac are making their way up the mountain for the sacrifice, Isaac starts to get a little curious about what's happening. He asks where the animal is that they're going to sacrifice, and Abraham answers, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. You see, Abraham's imagination was shaped by God's provision, not by his own ability to see or understand the present or the future. He was convinced that the goodness of God would come through. And I will say, God did provide, by the way. <laughs> there was a ram, so everything's cool. Um, so how we practice the way flows from how we view God, ourselves, and other people, and what we meditate on as a church animates our community, our social imagination, if you will, and leads us in a particular direction. Dorothy Day eventually returned to New York, where she would meet a man named Peter. Peter, I'm, I'm going to get this report, Peter Morel, I'm trying to pronounce the French here, was an educated Frenchman who had arrived in New York via Canada. He was inspired by St. Francis of Assisi. He lived a life of voluntary poverty and was inspired by Catholic social teachings. If he had let his lack of resources animate his imagination, we probably wouldn't be talking about him here now. Instead, he imagined what was possible with God. Peter had a plan. Form local communities around, local, around round table discussions begin houses of hospitality, where works of mercy could be performed, and start agricultural universities, essentially. A return to working on the land where workers could become scholars and scholars could become workers. And he was gonna get the word out about all of this through a newspaper. And so, Dorothy Day, with her fiery passion to serve the poor and her journalistic savvy, met Peter a visionary and intellectual, and they teamed up. In May of 1933, amid the Great Depression, they founded a now famous newspaper called The Catholic Worker. Within a year, circulation had jumped to 100,000. Within a few years, there were 33 Catholic worker houses and farms across the country. And decade after decade, Dorothy's passivism mixed with activism, which is an interesting combination, collided with history. World War II, Vietnam, the civil rights movement, industrial agriculture, capitalism, so on. You can imagine. But she stayed true to her convictions throughout her life. And she died in 1973. But today there are still 150 Catholic worker communities worldwide, including one here in Des Moines. Really like two minutes from here. So do I agree with all the political beliefs or the methods of those running Catholic worker houses today? I don't know, probably not. That's really not the point of what we're talking about here. But years ago, I knew a man named Mike through church. He was in his 50s. He had minimal ability 
to communicate verbally. He was challenging to understand and dependent on others. And most would have assumed he was homeless. Mike had very few teeth, and finding food he could enjoy was sometimes tricky. I often gave him a ride home after church, but sometimes he didn't want to go home. And he'd just look at me, and he'd pat his belly and say, worker house. Those meals fed Mike when he needed help. And those meals are still feeding me today. What's shaping the imagination of this community? What shapes your dreams, our dreams? Are the boundaries of your imagination open to the power and presence of God today, still? Can you see the image of God written on those around you? Can you hear the rhythm of his glory when you feel your own heart beating in your chest? Some days, this is kind of hard for me. This is why we need reminders from each other. It's one reason we need community. It isn't easy to do this kind of deep, vulnerable work, but it is good work. Both Dorothy Day and Mike are with the Lord today. Someday we will be too. And we'll close with Romans 8, 38 and 39, which says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So beloved, if this is true, imagine what's possible with God.